This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. Welcome everyone to the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I am Mariah Muhammad, writer and moderator with Becker's Healthcare. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have with me today, Dr. Claire Mock, Director of Safety at the Department of Medicine and the Associate Professor of the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Doctor, it's very nice to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, very excited to talk with you today. Um, And to get us started, would you mind just please introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your background? Absolutely, absolutely. And and with that, again, I just want to say thank you um, to you and Beckers for for having me today. You know, I I really appreciate this opportunity to be able to to talk about, you know, uh, patient safety and, and healthcare and Obviously, a big thanks to everybody listening who's given up um, your time to, to listen to me. Um, I feel quite grateful for that. Um, my name is Claire Mock. I'm currently a practicing hospitalist. Um, if you're not familiar with that term, hospitalist is uh, basically an internal medicine or general medicine physician who generally only practices in the hospital sitting. Um, we take care of patients who are hospitalized for acute medical illnesses were a bit of a unique specialty in that we're really kind of a jack of all trades per se. We take care of everything from patients with heart failure or pneumonia to patients with complex surgical issues or significant mental health or substance abuse issues, or sometimes even those who just really aren't able to find care in, in another niche or, or another area of the hospital. So, so for me, it's really a job where you're, you're constantly learning, you're constantly exposed to new things, new patients, um, really have to be on your feet um, quite a bit. And, and that, that, that for me is the, the appeal. There's certainly never a boring day um, or a boring patient. Um, right now, so in addition to my clinical duties as a practicing hospital, um, as you mentioned, Mary, my main role in the hospital is, is patient safety. Um, I got into this area of medicine, I'd say, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, at that time, I was practicing in Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and I had a, a very fortunate opportunity to work with you know, many um, incredibly talented um, and intelligent uh, leaders in patient safety and quality improvement, including um, Dr. Peter Pronovost, um, to help um, create and lead a, a training program for residents and fellows in quality improvement techniques and patient safety. Um, for those of you who haven't heard of uh, Dr. Pronovost, he is he's really kind of one of my, my heroes in patient safety. He um, had what at the time was really a novel concept um, of creating what we now really take for granted as the central line check, checklist is a, um, you know, a set of steps and actions that we should take that's, that's standardized and team-based so that we are, when we are doing a high-risk procedure, like a central line insertion, that, that we do it, that we do it safely um, and efficiently and effectively 
Um, and we do it together as a team. Um, and this, this idea at the time was really revolutionary and, and it resulted in substantially improving outcomes for this procedure, uh, less complications, less infections, and it's really been adopted as the, the standard of care, but, but at the time was, was pretty novel. Um, but I, so again, it was, it was really um, lucky that I was at the right place and right time and got to interact and, and learn from these individuals. And uh, during that time, you know, I, I really enjoyed learning about quality improvement, which is basically the idea of learning structured processes and techniques to improve care, make care more efficient, make it more effective, um, and improve patient outcomes. Um, but as much as I liked quality improvement, I was incredibly drawn to the, the science of patient safety. I, I really loved learning and understanding how human psychology um, plays out in medicine and the why and how we do things and the why and how the decisions that we make. I loved how patient safety encourages detailed and thorough investigations um, using processes like an RCA or root cause analysis where we really dive in really deeply after a negative event and, and try to work as a team to figure out why and happened. You know, to me, it's like a little bit like being a crime scene investigator, but, but in the hospital. And I love this idea of the interplay between safety and risk analysis and improvement science. You know, for me, it's like, feels a little bit like, you know, a law and order hospital style. And it's kind of a dream come true for me because uh, growing up, I, I, I'm absolutely certain I've seen literally every single episode of, of law and order probably many times. So um, the vast majority of my family is in law. Um, I think I, I am the only healthcare um, worker. So, I, you know, it's possible I, I miss my calling there. But Going back to, to patient safety, you know, the other tenant specifically for me at, as a physician, um, what drew me to patient safety was this idea that, that one of the central ideas is the importance of creating a just culture in healthcare. And what just culture focuses on is the idea that humans are going to make mistakes. It's inherent in human nature. And although we certainly have a lot of technology in healthcare, healthcare is made up of humans. So if we continue along the old idea, the old line of thinking um, in healthcare that we should blame and shame and punish people when they make mistakes, you know, we're not going to make things better. We're not going to stop the next person from making that mistake. What we're going to do is teach people to hide those mistakes. And that's not going to help the people working in healthcare, and that's absolutely not going to help our patients. Um, and so, moving away from this, I think, is what we need um, for our healthcare system to thrive. And for physicians, I think it's also helpful um, to allow us to thrive. You know, I at the time I learned about these concepts and, and really started to internalize them. I just finished a what I would say was you know, wonderful, but, but pretty intense, pretty regular three-year residency where one of the main ideas I took away was that, you know, if, if I worked hard enough and I trained hard enough and I studied hard enough and I cared enough 
that I, as the physician, could could solely control the patient's outcome. That that by you know force of sheer will, I could I could make sure they got better. And I at the time really believed that, but then I also found that there were some times, despite my best intentions, that I made mistakes and clearly unintentionally, but nonetheless significant, those, those mistakes harmed patients that, that I intended to care for. And so, you know, how could these two things be true? Um, you know, if the, if the first tenant is true, then, then when I make a mistake, it means uh, perhaps I'm not a good doctor. Perhaps I don't belong here, that, that I wasn't working hard enough, that I'm not smart enough. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a hard thing um, to kind of live with when you're in a, a constantly high stakes, high stress career, such as medicine. So, so just culture allowed me to understand that these two truths could exist at the same time. I could be a good doctor who does care and does work hard. And sometimes bad things happen. And, you know, what I can do about that is, is try to make them better. Um, so for me, that's, that's how I got to where I am today. That's the long version. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for giving us that background. And to jump into the questions, the first thing I wanted to talk about is Given the uh, the complexity of healthcare environments today and the high stakes involved in patient care, what are some of the most significant challenges that physicians face in terms of patient safety? And do you have any solutions on how they can be overcome? Oh, well, that that is a such an important and deep question. It's honestly a little hard to know where to start, but I'm certainly going to try. Um, there. So many challenges that physicians face today when we are trying to provide good care for our patients, given how incredibly complex and bureaucratic our healthcare system is. The biggest challenge I see today is that it feels like we as physicians, and in particular physicians that make up the, the vast majority of, of physicians, those that are, you know, at the bedside in the clinic providing direct patient care, that we have really lost control of the ability to affect positive and meaningful changes in those environments that we work. We probably almost every day when we go to work and we go to the bedside to care for patients, we see things that aren't working, um, to put it another way, that are broken. We see clinics that aren't staffed, hospitals that don't have the equipment we need or the people we need or the resources we need, and we know that without those things, we really can't provide the level of care that we want to provide. We know that what we're going to have to do and what we're doing every day is really make do, you know, take shortcuts, make 
make the best of what we have, but that we're not going to be able to consistently and reliably provide the level of care that, that we want for our patients. And when we speak up and when we try to advocate for these things, it honestly feels like there's this just deafening silence. There is just layer upon layer of administrator or VP or who knows, systems executive, you know, the terms keep changing, but the, but the layers and layers of administration that are between the bedside and the decisions that affect our day-to-day lives are, are just becoming so opaque and so deep. Um, I, I'll give you a couple examples because I think it, I think I imagine it would be hard to envision physicians really not having power because I think we think of physicians, you know, in our, our old mental model as, as these folks with with pre- prestige, with with power that that their voices matter, and you know, it that's just just not the case anymore. Um, So, you know, one example, gosh, maybe a a couple years ago now, um, you know, I was talking to um, an anesthesia colleague. Um, This individual has a leadership position um, within their local um, surgical ICU. And they were telling me how, you know, over the past several years, they've continued to experience negative patient outcomes related to difficulty, you know, safely and effectively intubating patients under, you know, urgent and emergent conditions. So when unexpected things arise and they, they knew he and his team really knew what, what the problem was. The, The problem was, in their opinion, is that they, they really needed different equipment. So in, and in particular, what they needed was something called a glide scope, which in this particular glide scope was, it's a, it's a little tube that has a kind of video monitor on it. Um, so when it goes into the patient's airway, it can show, um, you know, the airway structures. So when the anesthesiologist goes to put the breathing tube in, they know exactly where they go, they're going. So they can get it in securely to the airway where they need it, when they need it quickly and efficiently. And they knew that access to this device, which, which are pretty standard, um, right? They, they've been around for a long time. They're, they're not um, all that new or novel, would improve outcomes. And, and they've been asking for the better part of two years these devices but what they found he found was despite being you know quote unquote the medical director of this this unit this ICU um, they didn't have access to the budget Um, the budget for that unit went through the nursing lines which went through administrative lines and vice president lines and director lines and and lines upon lines and despite having data supporting why this 
device was necessary and how it would improve patient outcomes? The answer was no, it, it's too expensive, maybe next year. Um, so they really were left feeling like they didn't have a way to affect, you know, improve patient outcomes in the way they desired. You know, another example was, uh, gosh, maybe a year ago now, um, you know, at my institution, I was just noticing some concerns in the work that I do in safety around, you know, the level of attending oversight for, for some of our, our trainees um, who are covering patient care overnight. And, you know, and particularly um, you, could, you could make this worry about, about any of our services, but in particular, I was a little bit worried and maybe seeing a little bit more of a signal in, in some of our, our surgical lines in terms of um, training oversight. And so I was talking to this colleague um, who's a, a general surgeon, um, also covers trauma, um, you know, about what's going on at their institution. What, are they seeing similar concerns? What, what might be going on? And, you know, what they told me was in their role, you know, overnight as an attending, they are expected to cover an entire surgical ICU plus all the surgical floor patients um, that, their, that their department covers. Plus any patient who walks in the emergency department with a surgical concern or a trauma or anyone who's already in the hospital who develops an acute um, surgically related problem overnight. And in a given evening, that could result to well over 100 patients, sometimes more. And this attending, you know, said, frankly, I, I know this. I know I, ca I can't do that all. That is not safe. It's not feasible. It's not practical. I mean, you can't do these things without cutting corners and making decisions about who you will and won't see um, because there's not enough there's not enough minutes and there's not enough hours in a night to do all these things. And, and we've asked for additional funding to, to post another position. And, and the answer is no. Um, the answer is it, it's not in the budget. Um, and so I hear these things. Those are just two examples, but I hear these things, you know, over and over again. It doesn't matter whether you're an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or a hospitalist or a near physician or an outpatient doc, you know, we, we all have examples where we just feel like we have to continue doing our job um, without being able to change um, the things that we see need changing. And, and it's hard. It's a very um, hard thing um, to be in healthcare right now. Um, you know, solutions to that, Dennis, um, that, that's a really tough one. I, I, I don't know if there's any easy solutions, you know, from a what we can control as physician standpoint. I, I think one thing we have to do as physicians is um, realize that we're all in this together what we are experiencing in our own roles, again, whether it's a surgeon or a hospitalist or an ER physician, 
um, the, the slight nuances of our challenges are certainly different, but the overall challenges are the same. So I think one thing we need to do better is uh, we need to work together. We need to understand that our voices will have more power if we have more unity, if we aren't competing with each other for resources, but advocating together for our more global needs. I, I think and I hope that that's a path forward, um, but it really requires us uh, to you know, collaborate and, and see each other as, as colleagues and teammates on, on the same side of the issue rather than what we've done in the past is, is groups feeling like we have to fight and claw and compete for these, these very limited resources. I think the fact that things so often come down to money and budgets leads us to believe if that group gets something, that means I get less. And therefore, you know, I'm competing against that group to have my needs met. But really, I think we need to do better about having all of our, our needs met, you know, together as a team, as, as hard as that may be. Yeah, absolutely. I completely, completely agree with you on that, you know, that last statement you just said. And in your view, what are some key ethical considerations that, you know, healthcare organizations should take into account when can, uh, when it comes to ensuring patient physician safety? Um, how can these considerations be incorporated into organizational decision-making and policies, do you think? Yeah, another great, great question. You are um, really asking very, very thoughtful and, and very important questions. So thank you. Um, I will try, try to do my best to answer that. Um, I think a key tenant for our organizational senior leaders to start to understand and acknowledge, I would say, for the vast majority of healthcare systems, I, I don't want to say all healthcare systems because I have this secret hope that there's some, some great organizations out there that, that are doing this right and have figured it out and they're going to help the rest of us um, um, get there someday. But, but for most of us, most of our organizations, I'd love our leaders to start to acknowledge that really most, if not all, of these advances and significant outcomes that our organizations are achieving and celebrating and highlighting in, on the news and on posters, um, these, these celebrations and these victories are, are really achieved on the backs of those doing the work, those at the bedside really providing the patient care. You know, and those backs, they have are and, and really have been for quite some time are, are breaking under these burdens. Um, you know, those who are working at the bedside are, are MacGyvering broken things together every single day to meet 
what we feel like are ever-changing whims of our organizational leaders' needs and desires. Um, and, and we aren't doing those things because we care that much about the CMS five-star or our Vizant ranking or our Prestini star scores. We're doing it because we care deeply about our patients and we care about our colleagues. Um, we do it because we're committed to doing the right things for our patients, you know, even if and when it often comes at huge personal cost. You know, the results they're seeing and celebrating, you know, in our C streets and our boardrooms honestly aren't being achieved because of whatever brand new. Yet exactly the same organizational strategy that was just rolled out or the newest flashy consultant that came through, they were achieved by the people at the bedside because they have this profound moral dedication to their patients. Um, and, you know, I've come to fully believe this, but this is not, this isn't a new sentiment. Um, there's a physician in New York, Dr. Daniel Ofri who really said this much better than I ever could back in 2019 in her New York Times piece, um, which was brilliantly titled, The Business of Healthcare Depends on Exploiting Doctors and Nurses, unquote. You know, in this article, she noted an absolute, what I find to be an absolutely staggering figure, um, which was that between 1975 and 2010, the number of healthcare administrators increased 3,200%. I mean, that just blows my mind because not only is that number huge, but that's 2010. And I can't even imagine what it is today, 13 years later. Um, I'd love really quickly to share just, just a couple of the lines from her article. It's a really short read. Um, so I encourage folks to, to do it, but um, just, just a couple sentences because I think this really sums up a lot of her message. She says, quote, an overwhelming majority do the right thing for their patients, even at high personal cost. Increasingly though, I've come to the uncomfortable realization that this ethic that I hold so dear is being cynically manipulated. By now, corporate medicine has milked just about all the efficiency it can out of the system. But one resource that seems endless and free is the professional ethic of medical staff members. This ethic holds the entire enterprise together. If doctors and nurses clocked out when their paid hours were finished, the effect on patients would be calamitous. Doctors and nurses know this, which is why they don't shirk. The system knows it too and takes advantage, unquote. You know, I think there's just so much truth and wisdom in her piece um, and this idea. And it, for me, it hit home so profoundly, um, gosh, maybe a year ago. I, I was in a meeting. This is a a regular meeting that we we have at my institution with the, the nursing, the various nursing and physician leaders. Um, it has a regular agenda. We talk about all, all sorts of things, you know, hospital business, quality initiatives, 
data metrics, how we're doing, how are we meeting our store, our stars, uh, you know, what's the Vizian quartile, you know, a lot of different things. Um, and this meeting was, you know, at a time we were, we were, I feel like we were finally starting to come out of, of the COVID fog. Um, and, and of course, we're all just incredibly exhausting because that, that time was, um, you know, hugely impactful for, for everyone around the world, but, you know, in a, in, a, in a very unique way in the healthcare environment. And we're at this meeting, and, and again, I think we're barely coming out of the fog. And one of our senior leaders was talking about this, this new initiative, this new quality initiative that, that's rolled out, and it's, it's going to, you know, really uh, make our hospital um, the best it can be. This this high quality um, place for, for our patients and this initiative, which right, sounds lovely, is is going to involve a substantial amount of work for these leaders, and it, it comes with really no resources, no time, no money, no support. Um, but the way this leader pulled this room of doctors, of nurses, of pharmacists, of therapists, of you know, really everyone kind of who has an important role in the hospital that, that we're going to achieve these results is that we were going to harness the intrinsic motivation of our team. I, I mean, I think, I think my draw jobbed. Uh, I, I, I just couldn't believe that there was an idea that there was any quote intrinsic motivation unquote left to be harnessed. I, I mean, what did they think we were doing every day for the past few years, you know, showing up to work under incredibly trying circumstances. There was no intrinsic motivation left to give. There were fumes. If that, um, I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it then and, and still now. I, I can vividly remember that moment. It just really struck home for me the disconnect between those who are separated from the work yet control the decisions that determine how we are able to work and how well we are able to work and how well we are able to take care of our patients. Um, so that I think the biggest ethical obligation for, for our senior leaders is, is to really try to reconnect with those, those doing the work. We know what our patients need. We know what the barriers are. We just, we just need someone to listen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for giving us that insight into this ongoing kind of problem. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you is, what strategies have you implemented within the Department of Medicine kind of ensure that physician-patient safety is prioritized? Um, and do you have any outcomes of that to share? Yeah, yeah, very good question. So kind of circling back, to one of my earlier concepts. So, so for me, over the past couple of years, my 
biggest priority has been to work to integrate a culture of safety into my department. And to me, that, that, that has many aspects, but, but there's two in particular that I think are most important. The first being the just culture um, idea and concept, really ingraining that. And then the, the idea of shifting our mental model to a teamwork model. Um, so in terms of the, the just culture perspective, so so for me, um, this has really involved, you know, a lot of education, um, going to different divisions, going to different departments, updating and helping uh, to teach and lead our faculty away from the concept of, you know, the physician as an island, um, the physician as this um, immutable person or object that, that just doesn't make mistakes and always gets it right um, and really can do it all on their own to this idea that we, we are fallible and that's just normal. Um, it's not a personal failing that we need to be able to talk about mistakes. We need to talk about them openly with others, with each other. Um, and that not only do we need to be able to talk about mistakes and bad events, but we need to be able to do so in a safe environment where we can get support. Because I think one of the things that we didn't acknowledge for a long time is the profound impact it has on the individual position when, when errors do happen, when harm occurs. Um, you know, I think maybe 20 years ago now, Albert Wu, Dr. Wu, termed this the, the second victim phenomenon that, that, you know, when things go wrong, obviously, you know, the patient, the family, their, um, the, their harm is um, really central and, and, you know, I don't want to say the most important, but but needs to be um, addressed right away um, and, and with a lot of thought and concern. But the healthcare teammates also experience harm, psychological harm, in that you have to know that something you did, you know, despite good intentions really negatively impacted someone's life, sometimes permanently. And that is a heavy thing to carry. Um, and it used to be that the culture was this idea of don't admit mistakes, don't talk about mistakes, we deny and defend. And that, that helps no one, and in particular ourselves as physicians. And the culture of safety and a just culture and a, and a good healthcare culture says we absolutely should talk about them. We absolutely should disclose them honestly. We should tell patients and families when we've made a mistake and, and we should apologize and, and ask forgiveness, not only because that's the right thing for the patients and families, but it's the right thing for ourselves. You know, having open disclosure 
um, with patients and families when bad things happen is, is the first step towards healing your own personal wounds. And if you, if you miss that opportunity and don't do that, you know, studies have shown the, the, the negative effects can be incredibly long lasting. And in severe cases, you know, it, it absolutely has caused individuals to leave healthcare and, you know, and even worse situations, it has caused individuals to take their own lives. It's, it's a, the impact of errors on everybody involved when you don't have an open um, and honest culture it is really profound. And so, you know, teaching that to our young trainees has been really important to me. And then working with our, our older um, doctors to, to really, uh, you know, walk back from our old mental model to, to accept that there's a different and better way to be doing things. And I, I think one of the ways that we've seen success in this, or I guess, you know, markers that this is, this is starting to work, this is starting to, to infiltrate is, you know, one of the things I teach and talk about is the importance of, you know, reporting errors. Um, most, if not all, hospitals have event or error reporting systems. And when bad things happen, when mistakes happen, you know, we need to report them. Physicians need to report them so that we can all try to learn from them. And as a team, we can come together and try to make care care safer. And, you know, traditionally, the, the average physician reporting rate is, is about uh, maybe 1% or less of all reports. I mean, physicians just traditionally don't interact with that system because traditionally, again, this idea of, you know, don't, don't talk about mistakes, don't admit mistakes. Um, but as we've shifted away from that, we've seen a huge increase um, in the number of physicians of really all level trainees, residents, fellows, and even attendings actually interacting with the reporting system. Um, and we've seen upwards of sometimes five, 10% of reports coming in in a month in our department being um, from uh, physicians in various levels of training. So that may sound, not sound like much, but, you know, compared to 1%, it, it, it's been huge. You know, the other way we've tried to, to integrate this idea of, of just culture and teamwork and um, learning is, is really shifting from the traditional morbidity and mortality conferences where we get up and, and we talk about a bad outcome and we give a learning point and, you know, we tell people, you know, do better, you know, don't, don't, don't have this happen again to a shift towards what we're calling now within our department, morbidity, mortality and improvement conferences, because what we're trying to shift is to looking at these instances of harm or even near misses where something almost went wrong, but we caught it just in time. Um, we're looking at these cases through the lens of, you know, what are all the factors that contributed? We know there's knowledge, um, right? We all need to learn more. We're always learning, but you know, what are the environmental factors? What are the resource factors? What are the technology factors? What are the teamwork and communication factors? And, you know, even taking that a step further, some of our 
our groups that are even farther along in this process are doing these conferences and integrating other members of the healthcare team. We're, we're asking our, our nurses to participate and give their perspective. We're asking our pharmacists to come and give their view. Um, we're asking uh, our colleagues from other um, disciplines, our surgeons, our anesthesiologists, our psychiatrists, our, our ER physicians, um, to come and give their perspective on the case so that we can really get to this place where we understand that we all have a vital and unique contribution in a patient's care. And the more we can understand each other's contribution, understand each other's perspective and learn from each other and depend on each other, you know, the better we can take care of patients, um, the quicker and more efficiently we can improve our systems um, because anymore in the complexity of healthcare, I mean, you can't do this alone. I mean, you can't, you can't practice in isolation because you won't be successful. Um, you know, quote I heard during one of um, Dr. Pina Protovo's lectures that I mentioned earlier, um, he was uh, giving a, a lecture and he was talking about just how critical teamwork is in healthcare. And I, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to quote it exactly, but, um, you know, he was talking about the importance of the team, the whole team, not just the doctor, but the nurse, the pharmacist, the respiratory therapist, you know, really valuing and listening to everybody on the team. And he described that when, when we don't do that, when we don't have a teamwork mentality, it's like playing a basketball game, but only having four players on the court because you left the fifth on the bench. And, and it's a very simple analogy, but, you know, now that I've done that for 10 years, I mean, it couldn't have been more spot on. If I'm not including the others on my team, I'm, I'm playing at a disadvantage um, and our patients need better than that. Um, so I think, I think those are kind of the concepts and strategies I, I've used to try to improve um, patient care within my department. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking about that and giving some great advice. Um, but quickly, before I let you go, doctor, um, to kind of give more uh, insight into this problem um, and to get some more solutions, what advice would you give to other healthcare professionals and organizations looking to create a culture of safety and respect for physicians and patients alike? Um, and what role can the broader healthcare community play in promoting these values and goals? Excellent. Um, and talk again, you, you asked very, very good, very tough questions. Um, thank you for the, for the challenge. Um, I say the first is probably going back to what I, I mentioned in your, uh, one of your earlier questions of this idea that healthcare professionals and particularly physicians um, but really all of us, I, I think we need to act and advocate 
more cohesively. I think we spent too long viewing each other as adversaries for, for this limited pie or limited pot of resources. And it, it hasn't gotten us anywhere, right? Um, so that I think from a broader sense, we really need to come together either you know, within a single organization, um, we could do that, but then also it, it, in a broader sense as well, um, in terms of, you know, national organizations and policies, I really think we need to be more unified and cohesive in our voices. And, you know, taking that one step further, I think really the ideal state would be not just physicians coming together, uh, physician and nursing groups coming together alongside patient advocacy groups, because our wants and desires and hopes for the future are absolutely aligned. There are, of course, differences in the exact details and nuances of what we need and want, but the core principles are the same. We want to be able to have a voice and some power in positively impacting needed changes within our healthcare systems in order for us to take the kind of care, the quality of care for patients that, that we want to give and that we strive to give. So I think I think we need to we need to be more cohesive and and we need to come um, to more agreements and consensus on, on the things we want and need. You know the the other part, I guess maybe circling a little more specifically to physicians and you know I I struggle a little bit in saying this because I. You know, I don't know exactly how this works. I, you know, I haven't mapped it all out yet. But, you know, one thing that I'm starting to toy with is this, this idea that decades and decades of saying yes to, to anything and everything we're asked of, while with good intent, has really led us down a really dangerous road. Um, and, and what I mean by that is this, this notion of, you know, physicians and, and really all healthcare workers, because we have this innate desire to, to help patients, particularly the patient in front of us, is we say yes to, yes, I will do this one more thing that you need me to do because I know if I don't, it's not going to get done. Or yes, I will work faster or harder or longer because I know we need more RVUs. If we don't get our RVUs, we can't hire that nursing assistant or scheduler that I know our patient needs, that our clinic needs. And yes, I will spend more time documenting these really complex, um, asinine phrases and terminology in my notes so we can get higher billing. Um, because again, I, I, I know we need the money. Um, in order to do the things and get the things that, that I know we need 
to take care of patients. Um, and even so much as saying, yes, you know, yeah, I'll continue to work. I'll, I'll continue to take on one more patient or cram in, you know, one more visit, even though I know I don't have what I need to do it safely, because if I don't do it, who's going to take care of that patient? And I think, and I worry that we're at the point where we have to start, start saying no. And that's a really hard thing for me to think about and say, because, you know, saying no will have negative consequences, right? So, so how do we do that in a way that, that mitigates harm? And, and I don't think I have the answer to that, but I also know that saying yes is putting our patients at harm every single day because we're being asked to do things that we can't reasonably and safely do. And so I just think we have to figure out a way that we stop saying yes. And maybe it's not that we don't say yes at all. Maybe it's that we say yes, but I need X, Y, or Z in order to do this thing you're asking me, or yes, when uh, we have this piece of equipment or this process change or this staffing change. So I don't know, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough concept and a tough idea. And I, I, don't, I don't have, I absolutely don't have the answers, but it's, it's something I've been thinking about more and more. And um, I'm hoping one day, someone much smarter than me can, can come up with a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for those final thoughts, doctor. This has been a very amazing and informative discussion. So again, I want to thank you so much for coming on Becker's Healthcare, especially for the first time. It was wonderful having you and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Of course. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm-hmm.